You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Paul Gross is the co-founder and CEO at Remora Carbon. While at Yale, he conducted experimental research that uncovered solutions to collective action problems like political polarization and the climate crisis. Remora got started when he read a dissertation on mobile carbon capture written by his co-founder Christina and convinced her to quit her job as a scientist at the EPA. Then he recruited his co-founder Eric, a mechanic turned engineer who built hydrogen and electric semi-trucks for some of the world's largest automotive companies. Their device captures the carbon emissions from a semi-truck. They sell the captured carbon dioxide to concrete producers and to other end users, helping fleets earn new revenue while meeting their climate commitments. They are working, quote unquote, to turn America's 2 million semi-trucks into a roving fleet of carbon removal devices. They say that adding their device to one semi-truck is equivalent to planting over 6,000 trees and adding it to every semi-truck would cut 5% of all of U.S. emissions. They've raised a successful round of capital from first round, lower carbon capital, which is affiliated with lowercase, Union Square Ventures, and other really great investors. They have some of the top largest fleets in the world working with them on pilots, including Ryder, who's been public about it. I think you'll really enjoy this episode because we talk not only about the company, but what he's learned along the way, how to recruit co-founder, how to judge good science, what Y Combinator should be telling people the advice they don't give you. Please stay tuned. Paul, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. So I've been dying to ask you, how do you convince someone to quit their job at the federal government and come join you in a two-person startup? <laughs> well, it's a lot easier when you're trying to convince them to join you to make their PhD a startup. So yeah. my co-founder, Christina, spent eight years inventing mobile carbon capture during her PhD with funding from the EPA. And she went to go work you know, at the EPA as a scientist. But I think most folks who've developed a new technology are pretty excited if we can find a way to make it a reality. And what was the hurdle? Why didn't she do it herself? My understanding is she just didn't want to do some of the other parts of starting a company, things like you know raising money and getting customers. I mean, my co-founder, Christina, is this brilliant scientist, and she just loves being in a lab. She loves creating new things. And so I just came along and said, well, I'll do all of that other stuff for you and let you do the thing that you love, which is focus on the science and focus on the technology. That's an amazing story. I know so many people who want to do something about climate, but feel like they don't know the science. And you found a way to take advantage of your other skills, coupled with someone who had good science and make a business. I think it's so inspiring. Thanks. I think there are a lot of these cases out there and you just need to do a little digging. You know, there are tons of PhD students and other brilliant scientists who have come up with technologies that could really make a difference, but often they don't want to, um, you know, raise the money or, or find the customers. And so, you know, I think one of my pieces of advice for someone that wants to start a company, but maybe doesn't have a PhD in environmental engineering or chemical engineering is, 
you know, go out and try to find someone who does. I don't think everyone needs to do that science because I've already come across so many scientists who are blocked at that point of having an idea, but not being able to start a company around it. So I think there's a need for folks to come along and just say, well, I'll take the other half of the work. So how do they find each other? Any suggestions? I don't think there's a really easy or good way. Otherwise, you know, I don't think this would be a problem. The way I found Christina was I started asking myself, why hasn't anyone captured carbon dioxide from a vehicle's tailpipe? And I spent months doing research to try to understand why this isn't happening in the world and what the barriers were to making this technology real. And in that research, I came across Christina's dissertation, which was published online, and I read it through. And I just called her up to ask her some questions uh, as part of my research. I wasn't initially trying to recruit her as a co-founder, but we really hit it off and she seemed totally brilliant. So I ended up talking with her a bunch more and I wrote her a business plan and convinced her to quit the EPA to join me. So, I mean, I think the short answer is just try to get interested in some kind of area or some specific you know, part of the problem and then do the research required to ask good questions and to come across stuff that isn't already being written about in the news. You know, you're not going to get it from a Vox article as great as they are, because if that's where these ideas came from, then, you know, they would already be in practice. So you're going to have to read dissertations and get really nitty gritty with the science. So you've got to dive into the details. How do you develop a judgment about what is good science or not? I mean, I think you have to just apply you know, common sense to, is this going to be a big opportunity to decrease emissions? And you know the way a lot of folks in the field think about it is, can we tell a realistic story where this gets rid of you know, between 500 million metric tons of CO2 per year and, and a gigaton, a billion tons per year? And if you can, you know, it doesn't have to be a super detailed story, but if you can do the back of the envelope math and realize that this is going to have a big impact, I think that's the type of technology to go after. And really, it's just about not, not just understanding the high level, but really trying to understand um, you know, what is required in terms of cost per ton abated, where the tax credits are, all of that stuff to figure out whether there's a viable business to be had. So you're saying choose something that would be big if it worked, but you're not necessarily evaluating whether it works yet? Yeah, I think there's no way to really know whether something is going to work for sure when it's just, you know, starting out as as a new technology. You have to you have to build a company around it, you have to test it, you have to build lots of prototypes. So, in my view, it's just about using your own judgment and trying to hone that judgment by reading a lot to figure out it does this sound like something that is feasible? Like are there that was the question I kept asking myself is what are the barriers that would get in the way of mobile carbon capture working? And so I, I came up with lots of different possibilities. And there were a lot of people that had written critically about the field online. So I went through all of their objections and tried to figure out whether there were real solutions to them. And I ended up convincing myself once I had really figured out that actually all of the objections I could find and think up there were answers to, that's when I started to feel that this could be a really exciting company to start. It sounds like a very systematic approach. 
I, I mean, I, I tried to make it a systematic approach. I think it's really important when there's so little time to tackle the climate crisis that we don't go after solutions that have no hope of scaling in time. So I tried to be really, really strict with myself to make sure that we were going to pursue a technology that would actually help, that was actually going to reduce a lot of emissions if it got to scale, and that was feasible um, to scale in such a short period of time. A lot of founder stories often get polished in retrospect to say, oh, I had this problem, I got passionate, I went and solved it. You're saying very explicitly, there's a global issue, climate, let me go find some potential solutions and then narrow from there to recruit the co-founder, pick the actual company. It's a very different narrative. That's how I did it. I mean, yeah, I didn't have a big fleet of semi-trucks that I needed to decarbonize myself. Um, so it wasn't really a personal no, you did. problem. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think I, I think that's a, maybe an underrated way to go. And it's particularly underrated when it comes to climate change, because the thing is that unlike, you know, start you know, creating an app or something, it, you know, you're not always going to be solving a personal problem when you start a company that's trying to tackle climate crisis. But th the thing is, you know, it's the most pressing problem of our generation. I mean, I think it's the most exciting place to be. It is a, I mean, just incredibly fast growing field. All these big companies are making climate commitments left and right. I mean, there's just this massive demand for solutions and there are tons of really brilliant scientists getting involved. There's just, I mean, billions of dollars of funding pouring in. So in my view, it's like absolutely the most exciting place to be. Um, and I would highly recommend, I think there are so many ideas still out there and so many technologies that haven't been commercialized. So I, I think they're just, this is like an incredible moment to get into this field. And that would be my recommendation for anyone that's thinking about starting a company. Awesome. Awesome. So why do you think the demand for carbon solutions, not just general outcry, but actual dollars flowing, why do you think that's grown so much? It's a combination of many factors. I think the pressure that activists and um, just you know students and and others have put on big institutions, big companies to change and to really treat the climate crisis as a crisis has been immense. I think the pressure that governments are in increasingly putting on companies is is also really important. And I think you know maybe it was the Paris Accord, maybe it was you know, a whole host of other possibilities, but somehow there's this sea change that we've seen in just even in the last year where companies now know that it is going to be a liability to emit carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. They know that this will be priced in the future. It's not a matter of whether there'll be some kind of price on carbon. It's just a matter of time. And so they're taking action now because they know if we get to the point where we, we see carbon emissions priced, and they haven't done anything, it'll just be too late. I mean, it'll be, it'll be a big deal for their share price, and it'll be a big deal morally to their customers. So I think it's just this weird combination where it's all come together in this moment of incredibly fast change. You know, I think the pressure shareholders, ESG shareholders are putting on companies is very real. So it's a really interesting combination of factors, but the fact remains that you know, now we've seen exponential growth in climate commitments. Now, more than 25% of the Fortune Global 500 have these commitments. I mean, they get announced almost every day. I think 300 were just recently announced. So this is an incredible opportunity that's opened up. 
How much does that market price depend on market price for carbon depend on subsidies or governments providing some kind of floor? I mean, I think in the long term, we need governments to step in to help. In the short term, you know, I'll just speak from our perspective at Remora, we're able to sell the carbon dioxide that we capture to concrete producers or other end users for a lot. And, you know, that's a very viable revenue stream for us for the next couple of years. And that'll, you know, help us scale up our operations. I think in the future, we'd love to see the carbon tech industry grow so that there are more creative things we can do with carbon dioxide. But we're also going to be sequestering carbon dioxide deep underground in deep geologic storage, which is the state of the art way that every scientist recommends to sequester carbon dioxide permanently. And there are already bipartisan tax credits for doing that in the US. And I expect those tax credits to grow in value over time. And I think that kind of work, especially bipartisan work, is just going to make the transition even more seamless. It's going to move everything faster. So I, I do think it'll be a combination of ideas like mobile carbon capture, which can be supported without government intervention, uh, as well as um, some significant government intervention to speed things along. So tell us more about mobile carbon capture. In your case, you're putting a device on semi-trucks. How does it work? So our device is a big panel that mounts on the back of the truck right between the truck and its trailer. So you can picture one of those big 18-wheelers. And our device essentially attaches to the truck's tailpipes, and then it captures at least 80% of the truck's carbon emissions. And it's essentially just a passive filter that the exhaust runs through, um, we do some conditioning of the exhaust, and then we strip out the carbon dioxide. We let the harmless gases like nitrogen and oxygen flow right out into the atmosphere. And then when we have this pure carbon dioxide that we've captured, the driver offloads it while they refuel, and then we take it and sell it to concrete producers or greenhouses or other end users. And we're able to share the revenue that we earn from the carbon dioxide with the owner of the fleet. So we can help big fleets dramatically cut their emissions, meet their climate commitments, and then earn this new stream of revenue from the carbon dioxide at the same time. How would you compare it to a catalytic converter? So, I mean, a catalytic converter, or in the case of a semi-truck, a diesel particulate filter, takes the you know, particulate matter that's coming out of the truck and it burns it into carbon dioxide. So it is basically solving one problem, which is pollution from particulate matter, and creating another problem, which is carbon emissions, which contribute to climate change. So our technology is basically symbiotic with the DPF or you know, um, on a car catalytic converter, and we're capturing those carbon emissions that are generated by the DPF. It's, it's a complementary technology. I think the difference is that carbon capture is a lot more challenging. So instead of a fairly small device, our device is huge. I mean, it takes up the entire back of the tractor, and it's quite difficult scientifically to get carbon dioxide out of an exhaust stream. So it's, it's a lot bigger, but it's kind of a similar idea that we're filtering out the bad stuff from the exhaust so that only you know, harmless gases come out of the truck. Yeah, it's a different, as you say, scientific process that's happening. But from a big picture perspective, we recognize that there were pollutants coming out of cars and trucks that we didn't want. And there was a mandate to put in these kinds of devices in the 70s. And now we don't even think about it as much. And I wonder if that future holds for your device. 
That's the hope. I mean, we have, you know, as, as I mentioned, Christina, who's one of my co-founders, she was a scientist at the EPA. We have a great relationship with the EPA and we really, I mean, admire the work that they're doing. And we, we hope to partner with them in the future to try to get this device and this technology rolled out as quickly as possible. You mentioned it's really big. Do you think it'll get smaller over time or will there be other improvements that come? Absolutely. I mean, like any technology, ours will get much smaller and much lighter over time. You know, if you picture the first computers that were the size of a room, now we've got uh, laptops and cell phones. So, I mean, I think we'll see a similar path with our technology. There are some limits because we're fundamentally, we're capturing a lot of carbon dioxide and storing it on the back of a truck. So we need a certain amount of space and weight in order to do that. But our device is going to get so much more efficient and so much smaller and lighter over time. What are the risks or trade-offs that you have to manage with the device on the truck? One big risk is that we hurt the truck's engine. So we have done an immense amount of work to make sure that we're not hurting the truck's engine at all. So one of the things we often hear is folks are worried about the back pressure that we're putting on the truck's engine. Um, so we have found in our extensive testing on our own trucks that we, even at the highest loads, only put 0.27 PSI back pressure on the engine, which is incredibly small, basically negligible. We're affecting the horsepower of the truck by much less than 1%. So we have worked really hard to make sure we're not affecting the power or performance of the truck at all. That's one of the biggest pieces uh, that we're, we're working on. And then I think the other trade-off that just has to be made is we have to think about how much carbon dioxide we want to capture because you know we could easily build a device that could do 1500 miles of driving before the driver needs to offload but then you know we're carrying more carbon dioxide around and adding more weight uh, so i think in the future we'll probably offer a couple different models that have different ranges and, and thus different weights don't just listen get engaged i host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits why do they need support and why is it hard well, think about all of the challenges of a nonprofit startup where only 2% ever make it to more than 10 million in annual budget and all of the challenges of a tech company in building a team, understanding users, figuring out what to build and architecting the right product. So why does it matter? Well, think of the established large tech nonprofits that impact your life. Mozilla makes Firefox and other important internet infrastructure. Wikipedia collects and distributes knowledge. Code for America makes our government work better. Code.org and Khan Academy teaches us all. In healthcare, Medic Mobile powers living goods and other local community healthcare workers. So go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle to find out more. Awesome. How did you go about getting first customers? I went out and I, you know, just, I don't, I didn't have any connections in the trucking industry. I just figured out who in my network maybe knew someone at any kind of company that had a climate commitment, whether or not they owned trucks, whether or not they were a trucking company. And even if it wasn't the right person at the company, I just asked for the introduction and, and tried to explain what we were doing as clearly and concretely as possible. And they would often get really excited and then connect me with the right person in the company. And you know, I'd eventually end up talking with the sustainability teams and the logistics teams. And I think what was really inspiring to me is to see how seriously and urgently 
these big companies are taking this problem. And I think above and beyond some of the things we talked about earlier in terms of what's motivating companies, I think there is also a sense of just personal urgency among a lot of the people that I've talked to. It makes me feel really optimistic about the future. And I just saw them spring into action. And I, you know, I, I, we were going through Y Combinator, the startup accelerator, and we said we need to sign up our first customers by demo day, which is the end of the batch. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, I told those companies that that was our deadline and they just really pulled together for me. And a bunch of them all signed up by demo day, just a couple of weeks out, we didn't have anyone signed up yet. And then it just a whole bunch of companies all came through and I, they moved faster than I think they almost ever move. And to me, that's a testament to the power of doing something hard and doing something ambitious. And I think this is like the biggest lesson I've learned so far is doing a harder idea or pursuing a more ambitious project actually in some ways counterintuitively is easier because people will just come out of the woodwork to help you. People will make exceptions to their processes. They'll move faster. They'll do what they can to support you. And that's just been so true, whether it's recruiting talented employees, working with talented professors, you know, getting companies signed up in much less time than they're used to. I'm just been so grateful for all the help we've, we've received throughout this process. Wow. I love this insight of harder missions can attract people to help you solve them and end up being easier. Oh, that's, that's amazing. And I love the judo of using this artificial deadline. I'm imagining like, Hey, I'm a grad student. I have homework to turn in. You have to do stuff by my deadline. It's like amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, I love it. So you also had very successful fundraise. Can you talk about how you did that? Of course. I mean, I will say, you know, the deadline wasn't entirely artificial. And I think that's the, the that's the part of the reason that we were so successful is that it didn't feel like I was just making something up. I explained to them very transparently, like, hey, you know, we need to raise money. Uh, around demo day, which is the end of Y Combinator. And in order to do that, it's going to really help us if we have some customers signed up. And they really understood that. And when we launched on demo day and announced our customers, many of the folks that had helped me get the deal signed emailed and said, well, how did the launch go? Like, how's your fundraising going? So they really cared about us doing well. And that, that was just, that was really amazing to see. So that was the first step is getting you know, customers signed up. And then the second step was going out to fundraise. And we ended up raising five and a half million dollars from uh, Union Square Ventures, first round, um, Chris Saka's fund, Lower Carbon Capital, some other really fantastic investors. And I think it's so much easier to fundraise when you've got real traction from customers and when you've got great proof points from the technology. And we had both. So I guess my advice on fundraising is to just focus on making the company better rather than focusing on fundraising, because ultimately it just makes fundraising so much easier when you have real things to talk about in terms of progress and momentum. So we didn't take any meetings with investors during Y Combinator. We just said, we're working on the company. We're trying to get customers signed up. And once we did, it was much, much easier to raise that money. How many of your investors did not have a specific mission or climate mandate? I think about half. So we've, we, well, we were really fortunate to receive 
uh, we were, we were, I mean, way oversubscribed for the round. So we received tons of offers from folks that didn't have any kind of mandate. And that's because folks are realizing that investing in climate is good for two reasons. One, it's going to decrease emissions and, and help solve the climate crisis. But two, it's also just a great way of earning more money and getting returns. And so I, I think there's less of a trade-off now than there used to be in terms of climate investing, which is why there's so many big funds getting um, established and, and raising more capital. So we did receive a lot of offers from folks that weren't climate focused, but we ended up mostly taking money from folks that were because we really care about our investors being aligned with our mission. So that's why two of our largest investors, Chris Saka's fund, um, Lower Carbon Capital, which is specifically focused on slashing emissions, and then uh, Union Square Ventures, which has a specific climate fund, um, they, they were our two largest investors. But we did take money from other folks as well who just we, we really got the sense that they cared about the mission, but they didn't have any kind of specific climate focus. Awesome. So the mission attracted people, it attracted dollars, and their success made it easier to raise dollars even from people who, while they might personally connect with the mission, didn't have an institutional mandate for it. That's right. I think there's no more powerful thing to say to an investor than, hey, we've got all these multi-billion dollar companies that are signed up they're ready to go right now. They, they want as many devices as we can deliver. I mean, that's, that's the most powerful thing you can say. And just to underscore the mission part, we, I mean, for our first engineering position, we had 285 applications. And every time we have a question for a professor, we'll just email them and you know, they'll get back to us. They'll, be, they'll try to help us. They'll connect us with other people. I mean, even when we needed regulatory approval from the Department of Transportation, we reached out and the people there were so excited and were so kind to us and went out of their way to help us get the other approvals we needed. Um, so it just it really matters across the board. It makes everything move faster. And, and I do really think that counterintuitively, it makes things easier. What are your thoughts on culture building? So you've got this big mission everyone's going towards, and you've got the urgency of climate in the background, but also the urgency of being a startup and, and having a fixed a, a number of dollars to achieve your goals. But how do you build a culture that's cohesive uh, where you've got automotive engineering expertise, you've got science, and then you've got startup. How does that all blend together? I think the most important part of culture building is the hiring process. So, you know, we, we were really lucky to have tons of different applications from really talented engineers. And we made sure that we asked every engineer that we talked to, and, you know, now we've hired non-engineers as well. And we asked the same questions. What have you done in your personal life or professional life to help other people or try to make other people's lives better? Um, what have you done to you know, tackle the climate crisis in your own life? Why are you passionate about tackling the climate crisis? And, and also, what have you done to build power for the marginalized communities that are going to be most sorely affected by the climate crisis? And we just filtered people out if they didn't have good answers to those questions. And that I think more than anything else has led to Remora just being such a fun place to work. I mean, I'm surrounded by people that are incredibly passionate about the, our, our mission and, and just about really trying to do something fast for, the, for climate change. Um, people are not in it to be part of a flashy startup or you know anything like that. We have really worked to find the right people 
and it's hugely paid off. And then from there, I think it's actually much easier because when you put a bunch of passionate people in a room together, it, it just, I mean, it, the culture kind of builds itself. We've done a lot to try to make sure that people, you know, get to talk to each other in ways that aren't just about work and, and all the other kinds of things that need to be done to build a good culture. But ultimately, I think the hiring process is the single most effective lever that you can pull there. Gotcha. What other advice would you give to an aspiring founder? I think that the other thing that is incredibly important is to make sure that you start from day one, hiring people from different backgrounds who have different perspectives, you know, who, who really bring true diversity to the team. Part of our mission, as I mentioned, is to build power for marginalized communities that the ones that will be most affected by climate change, in addition to just trying to reduce the world's emissions as fast as possible. And I, I mean, I just see so many startups that are like 10 white men. And I, I just, I think that that is such a huge mistake. I mean, that's just leaving so much of the talent in, in our country and in the world on the table that that is just really, I think, shooting yourself in the foot more than almost anyone realizes. And yeah, I, th I think that's almost equally important to actually you know, building the product and everything else. I think it's incredibly undervalued across the board in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. So I think that's something that needs to start literally right away, like with your very first hires. And I think it's incredibly important, it's something that we've tried to focus on. And I, I just think that it brings enormous, enormous benefits. So you're looking for diversity, a number of dimensions, while your hiring process is screening for agreement and action orientation towards climate as an issue. That's exactly right. You know, I've seen firsthand the difference it makes when your initial team is more diverse. It ripples out and it, it, it does lead to a completely different way that the team evolves. I've definitely seen that firsthand. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think that if you're a team of 10 white men, it's going to be probably a lot harder to hire a woman, a person of color. I mean, you know, it's, it's just, it's kind of obvious, but like it, it just is really important to make sure that you bring folks on board who are from different backgrounds immediately, because that is going to build the kind of culture that will then be comfortable for a wide range of people when you need to grow the team in the future. It also just it is a matter of common sense. Like, I mean, I think to, to those startups that are, you know, just a bunch of white men, I just wonder, like, is that really where folks think all the talent lies? I just, I, I don't understand it. I mean, there are talented people from absolutely every background. And I think it's incredibly important to find those talented people and, and bring them on board as, as much as possible. Great advice for people. Do you have a book or article that you'd recommend to aspiring founders? I would highly recommend just some of the writing and podcasts that Y Combinator has done. You know, I, I think... When I was just starting out, I read a lot of blog posts and listened to their How to Start a Startup lecture series. And I actually found some of those lectures really helpful. I think, you know, I don't agree with all of Y Combinator's advice by any stretch, but I think a lot of it is, is really excellent. And, you know, things like talking to customers early, so important and so undervalued. People often spend years developing a product 
And then they, once it's perfect, want to go talk to customers. And, and what we've done is right from the start, we went out and just got a bunch of customers on board who've then given us enormous amounts of advice throughout the process. And we always are bouncing questions off of them. So, I mean, that's just one piece of advice that Y Combinator emphasizes that's so crucial, you know, talk to customers and write code or build the product. And, and they have other pieces of advice like that you know, do things that don't scale. I mean, that's a, a really counterintuitive piece of advice that I think has been super helpful for us already. So that would be my my principal recommendation. I think my other recommendation is to not spend too much time reading books or, um, you know, preparing yourself, but just go do it. Like, I, I think so many people spend so much time kind of planning and trying to optimize. And ultimately, I think it's going to be hard to learn how to start a company through anything other than just starting a company. So you made a strong case for diversity inclusion. I haven't heard that in Y Combinator's public talks. Yeah, I think that um, I think that Y Combinator underemphasizes that. I mean, I, I know that they do some work to recruit founders from underrepresented backgrounds to apply to the batch, and I know that they're working on that. But I don't think that's one of their core pieces of advice. And I think that it should be. I mean, it's, in my view, it's incredibly important to building the most competitive company that you can, you know, just in terms of even just the, the regular business outcomes, but also just the most mission oriented and, and moral company that you can, which I think is really important as well. I also found your advice to be really intriguing about don't read too much, uh, take action. I think I personally take the approach of read a lot, do a lot. <laughs> don't don't I mean, be stuck in analysis paralysis, but I do find learning the models of how do other people think about selling, how to think about collections, how do they think about product, you know, et cetera. It does help me as a founder, but but don't spend weeks analyzing. Start doing and reading at the same time is what what I think I lean towards. What your thoughts? Yeah. I, I think that's a great distinction to make. I I mean, of course, we just talked earlier in the podcast about how I spent months reading about carbon capture and really trying to learn why this solution hadn't been brought to market already. And I think some kinds of reading are really important. The kind of reading that I was talking about uh, was, you know, now is this kind of the generalized advice that you often hear from founders or others. I think often advice is wildly extrapolated personal experience where it's someone who's founded one company or maybe two, and maybe one of them has been successful. And now they're extrapolating that very, very specific experience to these kind of broad pieces of advice. And in my experience, starting Remora has been very different from the stories I've heard of starting lots of other companies. And, and I assume that everyone has a pretty singular experience. So my, my, I guess my, my wariness is around those types of accounts, or, or uh, I think there's a temptation to just keep keep learning through others experiences when actually your experience is likely to be pretty different but as problems or specific questions come up while you're building i think reading can be an incredibly helpful tool you know how do i best execute a sales process or how do i best hire i think that's those types of tactical questions there's some great writing online that can be really helpful but i completely agree reading while doing is is definitely the better approach yeah, real-time learning. 
I think Absolutely. it's uh, the way to go. Uh, people tend to absorb better when it has application right now. Absolutely. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Really fun. Loved having you. In closing, where can people follow you online? People should go to our website, remoracarbon.com, R-E-M-O-R-A-C-A-R-B-O-N.com. And if you want to stay up to date on our work, you can sign up for updates. You'll see the updates tab, remoracarbon.com slash updates. And you know, if, if folks are interested in joining the team, that's the best place to go. That's where we'll be opening uh, or announcing new openings first. And then you can follow us on Twitter at Remora Carbon. Um, we also post there. Otherwise, you know, feel free to reach out if you have any questions at hello at remoracarbon.com. Um, those are the best ways to get involved and stay in touch. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's Startups for Good, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.